Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode six of Coffee with the Queen. I'm Nicole. And I'm Cindy. Okay, guys, time to grab a cup of coffee and settle down. This episode is fact-packed and a little bit long. Today, we're discussing labels that capture aspects of your coffee's identity, such as single origin, fair trade, direct trade, small batch, and certified, among others. Cindy and I discussed breaking this up into multiple podcasts, but ultimately decided that presenting this information together gives you a better platform to assess your coffee and really know what you're buying. After listening, if you're interested in learning more about anything mentioned in today's podcast, please visit our blog, coffeewiththequeen.com, or our podcast site, coffeewiththequeen.podbean.com. Up there, we have more blog entries that go in-depth into many of the topics discussed today. Okay, so for those of you who love to study your coffee bag, you've likely noticed that many of coffee's identity labels are layered, muddling up the difference between growing location, growing conditions, and trade conditions. So today, we're going to try to deconstruct and simplify coffee labeling, starting with what I would consider to be the macro descriptor, which is growing location, or how we like to think about it in the coffee world is coffee traceability. All coffee starts, and unless blended, will generally finish as a single origin coffee, even if the coffee bag doesn't have the label single origin on it. So technically, a single origin coffee means that all the beans in a coffee bag originate from and reflect the characteristics of a single region within a country. That means the beans that create a single origin coffee may all be from a single crop or farm or from multiple crops or farms. Generally, beans that are marketed together are grown under similar conditions and have near identical profile characteristics such as shape, size, and taste. Single origin coffees may be grown by any type of producer and may be of any quality level. And I think that's really important to know because often people think single origins must be great quality coffee. Not necessarily true. They just have to be grown from the same region and share very similar characteristics. So within single origin growing regions, there are different growing lots. So similar to agricultural lots, individual lots can be very small or they can be massive. Those lots can be owned by a single family, individual or organization. One family or organization could manage multiple up to thousands of lots. If coffees from multiple lots in the same region were bagged together, they would still be labeled single origin, even if those beans were grown on different lots by different families and using slightly different processes. So Nicole, are there organizational standards for considering a bean to be of single origin? Meaning does the National Coffee Association or another certification association have specific rules? No, there's nothing saying they have to all be X quality grown under X conditions and they don't even have to be, as we said, from the same lot or farm. They just need to share very similar characteristics and be from the same region. So if you think of a neighborhood, like a residential neighborhood, I'm growing my coffee at one end of a zip code, you're growing your coffee at the other end of a zip code. Assuming that we're at the same elevation in our beans are about the same size, have the same characteristics and taste, we could mix our beans together and they're going to be packaged as a single origin. Even if you and I have no contact while we're growing, our beans so we're using slightly different processes and growing them and caring for them. Does that make sense? Yes, thanks. After establishing a beans growing region, the next point of traceability is the growing farm. Beans can be grown on massive thousand plus acre commercial farms or on very small farms. If you see the term small farm grown, that means that all the beans in that bag originate from a single farm. Most often these small farms are owned by one family, but they could be owned by a small community of people, such as a co-op, or by a small organization. Once the growing farm is identified, the next thing we look at is the actual growing lot. So as with agricultural farms, growing lots can be very large or very small. 
generally exceptional lots that produce coffee with very unique characteristics are referred to as micro lots. Micro lots can be grown by any type of producer, so a commercial producer, a small farm, or an individual. But that indication of micro lot means that those beans are unique in character and have an exceptional quality, earning a cupping score of 85 or above. Micro lots can be either a small lot that produces beans of significantly higher quality than neighboring lots, or it can be a best of beans from numerous lots on a farm, estate, or within a co-op. Of the terms described thus far, micro lot is the only one that provides a quality indicator, as all the beans in that bag labeled micro lot must be grown at high altitudes in nutrient-rich soil and share the same shape, size, and profile. So micro lots, as the name implies, produce very limited quantities of beans, often less than 100 bags, which is why if you buy a micro lot coffee, you'll probably notice they are a little bit more expensive. But of the terms we've discussed so far, it is the only one that when you purchase, you should know that it's been high-grown, shade-grown, it's going to be an Arabica. So once harvested, these same beans earn some additional distinctions and kind of identity labels, such as co-op grown. When you think of the word co-op, you may envision a bunch of people tending a single piece of land without distinction of personal ownership. And while this may be true for some things, it's rarely true for coffee. Coffee co-ops are generally composed of multiple small, independent farming allotments that share equipment and processing facilities, and whose processes are managed by a single overseer to ensure consistency. So this is where we get a little bit different from single origin, which those beans could be processed slightly different. There's no one overseeing the process. With a co-op, you're going to have somebody who's overseeing the process to ensure that different lots are growing their coffee in a similar way, and those beans are being processed in a similar way. Beans processed at co-ops most often represent coffee grown by different growers that have been mixed, processed, and sold together under a single label. So estate coffees are similar to co-ops in function, but they are often owned by a single farmer. And estate coffees, if you see that label, it also tends to indicate a coffee that's been very well cared for from seed through processing. While co-op and estates most often own a fixed piece of unified land located within a single region or country, they could have growing lots dispersed over non-contiguous land area. So it's really important that you read the full label when you're buying something from a co-op or an estate. Generally, a single estate or co-op will likely sell numerous coffees, crossing numerous profiles and quality grades. So that's, again, another thing to look at. Just don't assume if you see a state that it's going to be great because they will, as they're processing their beans, filter out their best beans from their next best beans from their third best beans. And so there will be different quality levels represented there. So to sum this up, we're going to make a few broad but mostly true assumptions. So if you see the words small farm on a label, odds are that the coffee is grown naturally by a handful of people. If you see the word estate, it's probably going to indicate that the coffee was grown under exceptional conditions with meticulous care given to processing. If you see co-op, that implies that there's a community supporting and supported by those beans. If you see single origin, you're really just able to pinpoint the coffee's growing region. Again, it's not an indicator of quality. While microlot will signal that the coffee is exceptional and unique for the region. So again, I'm going to ask a similar question to what I said previously. I'm just wondering, are there any standards for these terms, or are they just assumed when you see the word that a state means something, that small farm means something, et cetera? So there's loose standards. So a state would mean that all the coffees were grown and processed on that estate. Coffee processing is very different from coffee growing, and many small farms do not have their own processing facilities, so they need to send the coffee out to be processed at another facility or co-ops you know, may have processing facilities on there, but again, you're taking beans from many different farmers. On an estate, 
the one thing we can be sure of is that those beans were grown on that estate and they were processed on that estate. The other term that we've used that has criteria is micro lot. So again, that's, you know, it needs to be beans of similar shape, size, and quality with a cupping score over 85 and grown at high altitude. And I think there's a few more that I may have missed, but in terms of single origin and small farm, no, there's no real strong criteria aside from what I've mentioned. Okay, well, it's just good to know because from that information, I know if I'm getting a micro lot, at the very least, it's got that high cupping score. Yeah, no, as I think a lot of people, the way that these terms have been promoted, people assume that they're spending money and they're getting something that's really fantastic. And that may not necessarily be the case, which is why I think when we were discussing podcast ideas, we thought that this was important to talk about because there is a lot of, I think, confusion over the way things have been marketed versus the reality of what you're purchasing when you buy something with one of these labels. Yeah, um, thank you. This really helps to clarify these terms. Our next identity label comes from certifications, which is going to get even trickier, Cindy, can describe either growing or labor conditions. So while there's many, many certifications out there, really too many to cover today without putting you to sleep, we are just going to talk about the three we feel are the most important and potentially misunderstood. Certified organic, bird-friendly, which is also known as Smithsonian certified, and fair trade certified. So every country or region has their own certified organic rules. And today we're only referencing USDA certified organic, which focuses on the environmental sustainability of growing land and the purity of the product produced. To qualify as USDA certified organic, a coffee must be grown in soil free from prohibited substances. It's a really important word, prohibited substances for at least three years prior to receiving certification. The crop must be physically separated from non-organically grown crops, and the land must have adequate crop rotation to prevent soil erosion. Each step in the coffee's life must comply with and happen in a facility with USDA organic certification. So that includes processes, transporters, and roasters. They want to use that certification label. Certification is very costly, and if one handler in that seed-to-cut process does not have USDA organic certification, the coffee cannot be called certified organic. Instead, those coffees are typically referred to as natural, sustainably grown, or organically grown. So without jumping too far down this rabbit hole, it's really important to note that USDA organic certification does not prohibit approved pesticides and fertilizers from being used on the land, nor does it require that coffee be grown under natural conditions or that the coffee meet a certain quality threshold. So a low quality, fully sun-grown Robusta can qualify as certified organic, as can an Arabica grown under tarps thrown up and you know, a rainforest has been felled. So I, I think that's, don't mean to be a downer on this one, but I think it's important to note because many of us buy certified organic thinking that we're paying for an extraordinarily clean, high quality, earth-friendly coffee, and it just may not be the case. So to learn more about this very tricky topic, you can visit our blog. We have an entry explaining why fewer and fewer roasters are renewing or promoting organic certified coffee. And if you'd like us to talk more about this, please leave a comment on this podcast and we will cover it in a future podcast. So Nicole, if I'm following you as a consumer, if you're really interested in the organic nature of your coffee, it may be equally as, if not more important to learn about the farm or the co-op, et cetera, where the beans are grown and what their standards are. And in yeah. turn, that is why it's so excellent when your roaster has a real personal relationship with the grower. Yeah, absolutely. Well, actually, we're going to talk about my favorite certification in a second, which is the only one that I have full confidence in. But yeah, it is really important to know your grower or trust that they 
have strong relationships with the people and that they're ethical. Now we can talk about my favorite. The only one, I shouldn't say this, but the only time I would say you don't need to to look at your roaster, just assuming that they're honest and they're not going to lie about the label they put on their coffee bag, is if you see the certification bird friendly. Bird friendly is a certification created and monitored by the Smithsonian Migratory Bird Center. It's the most stringent, most environmentally conscious certification. I know I'm getting a little too excited about this for some reason, but bird friendly <laughs> strives to protect migratory birds' natural habitats. And to achieve bird-friendly certification, farms must be certified organic with healthy soil and no pesticide use. The certified farms must also grow their coffee under at least two layers of natural vegetation and a variety of native shade trees standing at least 39 feet in height when pruning those trees must still provide a minimum of 40% coverage. And this is just a few of the pieces of the certification. This is a very hard certification to achieve with very high standards. It's a pass-fail certification, unlike the other certifications, which have kind of an area where you, you have to comply with 70% or 80%. This one is a very clear, you've complied with everything and you pass or you fail. Okay, I'm just going to throw in that our Peru dark is bird-friendly and my favorite single origin. And for a dark roast, I have never tasted a cup that brews up this smoothly. Yeah, it's a delicious starker. It's one of my time-tested favorites, I think. You know, it, I've been drinking Peru Dark. Oh, God, I feel old now. But for at least over a decade, it's always delicious. So, And I love, the, and I love birds. So I love the fact that it's also helping save songbirds. I agree with you. So another very common certification, we're shifting gears a little, is fair trade, which deals with workers and sales rather than really with the environment. Fair trade organizations strives to provide growers with good working conditions and living wages by establishing fair minimum prices for producers with fair trade certification. And then there's another level for producers with both fair trade and certified organic certifications. To receive fair trade certification, producers must meet established standards on worker wages, rights, and empowerment, product traceability, internal management, and environmental sustainability. Fair trade focuses highly on worker quality of life and requires only baseline environmental criteria to receive certification. As with certified organic, coffee may be sun-grown or shade-grown, pesticide-free, or grown with approved pesticides. Okay, so fair trade coffee is often compared to another trend in coffee, which is known as direct trade, which is, I think, what you were talking about before, Cindy. So direct trade occurs when coffee roasters purchase beans directly from a grower at a price determined by the grower. The grower might be an independent grower with their own farm or uh, an interdependent grower that works as part of a larger co-op. So this direct trade relationship between the grower and the roaster really ensures that the farmer is compensated at the price that he feels is fair and reflected the quality of his beans. So there's significant pros and cons to both direct trade and fair trade. I don't want to be too biased as we in this particular podcast or go into it, but if you are interested in learning more, please leave a comment and we will do another podcast on the difference between fair trade and direct trade and what that really means for growers. Or you can visit our blog, coffeewiththequeen.com. We have a blog entry up there that kind of delves into this. Okay, so to recap, the labels certified organic, fair trade, and direct trade can give you some certainty in what the value prop of, of what you're purchasing is, but it, none of them are indicators of quality coffee, eco-preservation, or grower financial protection. So again, sorry if that's a bit of a downer, but I think it is important to know that these labels and certifications, what they're actually achieving versus what they're kind of purported to do. 
And I would say, just to be fair, that at least 50% of these times, these certifications do really result in landing growers realizing their intended purpose. Okay, so we've covered labels indicative of growing and selling conditions, leaving us with our final label, which is small batch roasted. The small batch roasted generally refers to coffee that is roasted in batches of up to 50 pounds, but it can also mean a small batch, say 150 pounds roasted in a 250 pound capacity roaster. Both roasts are technically small batch, but only one will taste like specialty coffee. That's the latter batch, the 150 pound batch roasted in a 250 pound capacity roaster. The former batch, the 50 pound batch, would taste uneven and baked. And it's frustrating, right? Because personally, I find small batch one of the trickiest descriptors to pin down because it has at least two meanings and there's no real clear criteria as to what constitutes a small batch. There's so much that goes into roasting. Again, this could be another rabbit hole, but bottom line is knowing that a 50 pound batch was roasted really doesn't tell you much about the roast. However, if you know that the coffee batch was roasted in a cylinder filled to a maximum of 70% capacity, and that it was being monitored and calibrated by a person that actually tells you much more about the quality of the roast. Overall, at Queen Bean, we don't think that the small batch roasted label really means much because there's no standard measure to determine the quality. We would tend to ignore it because the small batch could be a batch that was roasted in a packed roaster, or it could be you know something that we would consider a small batch, which would be a hand-monitored batch for the coffee beans headroom to agitate and move around and, and get an even roast. So that sounds like another great question to ask your roaster if you have that availability, if you're able to. Yeah, you could. So I think most of them say, oh, we do small batches, we do 50 pounds. But if you have a 50-pound roaster, basically what happens when you're roasting coffee beans, they expand and they release water. So every roaster has what they call the maximum capacity and maximum fill versus they're recommended. So if you have a 50 pound roaster, you can fill it up to 50 pounds. And as those beans expand, they'll still be able to stay in your roaster, they won't be overflowing, but they won't be able to move around well and get an even coating. It won't be able to heat evenly and roundly. So what happens is the the beans on the bottom get scorched, the beans on the top really won't be roasted and everything else kind of tastes baked rather than roasted. It's just not a nice taste. So 50 pounds just doesn't tell you much. And that wraps up our long, serious discussion on some of coffee's, let's say, like trendiest, sexy identity labels. For more information on anything we discussed today, please visit our blog, coffeewiththequeen.com. Again, we have detailed entries that take a much deeper dive into the labels, certifications, and practices we've discussed today. Or if you would like to hear us discuss this more about the pros and cons of, of any of the labels discussed today, please let us know using the comment field, and we'd be happy to do a podcast on it in the future. So now for our fun bit. It's time to get boozy with Cindy and some of her winter-warming rum-based coffee cocktail recipes. Cindy? Oh, thanks, Nicole. That was a lot of truly interesting information. And if you're like me, you may need to wash that down with a drink. Well, fortunately, (laughs) you are in luck. As today, I am featuring three coffee cocktails all made with rum. First up is a coffee dark and stormy, which is a play on a traditional dark and stormy, a much-loved classic cocktail. This drink uses Gosling's black rum, ginger beer, and espresso. The combination really highlights the espresso blend's inherent flavors. The richness of the rum, combined with a garnish of lime, work incredibly well with the texture and citrus cloves of the Queen Bean's Espresso Joe Beans. In my opinion, adding coffee to the dark and stormy elevates this cocktail to the next level. 
Next, the queens take on a flaming Spanish coffee. Now, Nicole recommended that I make this coffee, and I'm so glad that she did. In this mm -hmm. cocktail, an overproofed rum, such as Bacardi 151, is literally set on fire. It is a marvelous thing to behold, and if you're having a party, your guests will be impressed for sure. Beyond the visual effects, this cocktail combines spices with the heated alcohol and coffee, allowing a superior blend to be created. The flavor combination is truly wonderful, and it will be a one-of-a-kind experience that you and any guests you have will truly appreciate. My last rum cocktail today is a German rum coffee. So if you enjoy the feel and nuances of Irish coffee, but you also love the spicy and earthiness that's inherent in a Caribbean rum, this one is for you. Traditionally, the German rum coffee uses a Jamaican rum, which is known for a spicy vanilla lace base topped with fruity overtones. The rum is aged very much as whiskey is, gaining nuances from the barrel that it is stored in. The rum has spicy and toasty notes that aren't ever found in a clear rum. My advice for this recipe is to try different rums from the Caribbean. They each will have unique flavor notes that depending on the coffee you pair it with will enhance the various flavors inherent to each specific rum. Golden and dark Caribbean rums are truly wonderful when paired with coffee. As always, I thank you for listening, guys. The links for these recipes I discuss can be found on our podcast site, coffeewiththequeen.podbean.com, or on our blog, coffeewiththequeen.com. And it's a short one for me today. So with that, I will pass the mic back to Nicole. Thanks, Cindy. I am so tempted to try that Spanish flaming coffee. I, your recipe looks great. I'm just a little afraid of fire. I feel like I'd burn my hair. I'm always afraid of burning my hair because I've had that happen once when I was lighting a grill as a kid. And ever since I have this fear of bringing fire anywhere close to my face. Yeah, honestly, Nicole, you wouldn't have a chance of burning your hair because the rum, the rum is deep in the glass. You tilt the glass when you light it. And then it's amazing. It's, it's truly amazing because the flame is contained within the glass. So as long as you're holding it away from your face, you are not going to burn your hair. You know, if an accident is likely to happen, I will be the one creating the accident. <laughs> and it went off really, truly well. I mean, for me, when I made that drink, I didn't have an overproofed rum. So what I did was preheat the rum. That scared me more. Preheating the rum on the stove with a gas flame scared me more than actually setting the rum on fire in the glass. <laughs> Okay, then I could probably do it because I have definitely, um, I can't remember, there's one recipe I use where I have to put alcohol and fire on the stove for like 10 minutes before I can actually start cooking. So, okay, maybe I will try this. You've given me confidence. Okay, so I, I, that concludes episode six of Coffee with the Queen. Thank you for joining us. And again, links to everything we discussed today are available on our blog, coffeewiththequeen.com, and our podcast site, coffeewiththequeen.podbean.com. If you like this podcast, please let us know by giving us five stars on iTunes. Your feedback and your reviews are really important to us. And they let us know that you are actually listening because sometimes I fear it's just my mom out there who's listening. <laughs> if you have any suggestions or like to hear any topics, we're happy to cover them as long as you relate to coffee. Please email us at info at or leave a comment on our podcast site. Finally, to learn more about our coffees, please visit us at thequeenbean.com. See you guys next month. See you soon, guys.